Good evening, everybody, and welcome uh, to the Dr. Roger Bland Lecture Series on Improving Children's Mental Health, presented by CASA, Child, Adolescent, and Family Mental Health, as well as our partners, the Institute of Health Economics, the University of Alberta, Department of Psychiatry, the Edmonton Public School Board, and the Alberta Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health. I'm Dr. Denise Milne, and I'm CEO of CASA and the CASA Foundation. Tonight, we'll be focused on a conversation on the often challenging, daunting transition that adolescents and their families face while transitioning from the youth system, youth mental health system, into the adult mental health system. So how can we best support, help our children when they transition? And how can we help them navigate between these two worlds? Tonight will be impactful and we will provide you with some understanding and strategies to help your child. We want you to want more, to be part of the system change, and to improve our current environment in Alberta. As you may know from the previous lecture sessions, it is our goal that the Dr. Roger Bland lecture series will inspire hope and wisdom through the expertise of our keynote speakers and panel members, and to engage in a conversation and learning. We want to create a very meaningful conversation of change by talking and providing information that is helpful to you. I would now like to introduce Leslie McDonald. You may be familiar with her. As you know, she has a long history in our community through her work with Global TV, her active involvement in community initiatives, her involvement with CASA, and her communications company. It has been such a pleasure to work with Leslie on the lecture series, and we look forward to further sessions and working with her. Thank you, and Leslie, hey. come on up. Thank you so much, Denise. And we're so pleased to have you here tonight. Uh, this is such an important topic. Uh, it's something that's confusing for a lot of people and for good reason, and we'll talk about that during the discussion. I'm looking forward to a really engaging evening and to hearing from all of you, because this is actually a discussion, not just a, a panel who are talking to you, but something that we'd like you to be a part of as well. Um, we uh, would also like to hear about your ideas online. If you look at the these pillows, your pillars, you'll see a hashtag. Uh, so that's the hashtag that you can use for Twitter to join in on the conversation. Um, I'd also ask you, please, turn off the volume on your cell phones so that it doesn't ring at a really key moment and you don't get really embarrassed if something like that happens. That would be really appreciated. Um, we're going to begin this evening. Uh, we are so delighted to have with us Dr. Ian Mannion. Dr. Mannion is a clinical psychologist and science practitioner who has worked with children, youth, and families over the last 30 years. He is an adjunct professor at the University at, in the School of Psychology at the University of Alberta, as well as the Director of Youth Mental Health Research at the Royals Institute of Mental Health Research. Dr. Mannion is actively involved in research on mental health promotion, youth depression, and suicide. He has a particular interest in systems research and how services are organized to best meet the mental health needs of youth. Dr. Mannion is a committed advocate for child and youth mental health, sitting on local, provincial, national, and international boards and committees. He is scientific director for FRAME, a newly funded international network of centers of excellence, a knowledge translation platform focusing on integrated youth mental health care globally. 
Dr. Mannion is also co-founder of YouthNet, a bilingual community-based mental health promotion program with satellites across Canada as well as in Europe. Ian is a person with lived experience, and he was one of the spokespiece spokespersons for the Bell Let's Talk campaign in 2018, and as we know, that's also coming up next Wednesday. We are so pleased and honored to have with us as our keynote this evening, Dr. Ian Mannion. Technical difficulties are temporary. Actually, while, while she's working on that, first of all, it's my absolute pleasure to be here. And I was so flattered to be invited. And I wear a lot of different hats. I'm a clinician, I'm a researcher. And because you've heard a little bit about me, I wanna know a little bit about you. So we're gonna do a bit of a research study, if that's okay with folks, right now. Does everybody have a pen or a pencil or something? You have one? Oh, put it away, you don't need it. <laughs> what you're gonna do is you're gonna answer some questions for me. And all you have to do is if your answer is yes, you're going to stand up. And if your answer is no, you're going to sit down. So if your answer is yes, you stand up until it's no. And if it's no, you sit down until it's yes. Do you understand? Does anybody understand? <laughs> Does anybody in the room? There, they understand. <laughs> it's OK. They didn't get it in Calgary either. <laughs> so some of these questions are about mental health. So you might feel a little bit embarrassed. And that's OK. We're all friends here. If you really don't want anyone to see your answer, just do this. I guarantee you no one's going to see, see your answer. So first question, I like pizza. So if you like pizza, you stand up. OK. With ham and pineapple on it. Oh, God. OK, so the out-of-the-box thinkers are standing up. I like that. I am primarily a service provider or educator. I'm primarily a service provider or educator. Well, a lot of you. I'm, I'm primarily a researcher. Stand up, Rebecca. Okay, there are a few researchers in the room. One hiding way in the back. Yeah, she's counting all your heads. Uh, I'm primarily a policymaker. They're embarrassed to stand up. So if you're not sure if you're a policymaker, actually, if you're not sure about some of your answers, if you don't want to, no, you have to do this. <laughs> Until I tell you to sit down. I'm primarily a parent. I'm a parent. Most important lens you could possibly wear, and remember that throughout the entire talk tonight. No matter what other hat you wear, that is a critical hat. I'm the parent of an adolescent. Hardest job in the world. You may want to say that a lot tonight. <laughs> I've been snowboarding. I've been snowboarding. Okay, okay. I get stressed out some of the time. I get stressed out most of the time. I'm stressed out right now. All the panelists just said up. My years as a youth were the best years of my life. My years as a youth were the best years of my life. Okay. Next question. I struggled when I was a youth. It's not surprising. And I wouldn't be surprised that some people thought they were the best years of life also struggled when they were youth. I like strawberries. 
I've been bungee jumping. That was just to make you move really fast. <laughs> Someone in my immediate or extended family has suffered from depression at some point in their life. Look around the room, folks. That's just your family. That's just depression. Doesn't count all your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, the kids that go to school with your kids. And doesn't include every other mental health problem you can imagine. I defy you to tell me that mental health is not a population health issue that affects us all directly or indirectly. I play golf. Try. Next question, I play golf well. <laughs> At least you're honest. I smoked when I was a teenager. I smoked when I was a teenager. Next question, I smoked tobacco when I was a teenager. <laughs> I wanted to see who sat down. <laughs> I feel that there are adequate mental health resources for youth in my community. I feel that there are adequate mental health resources for youth in my community, and I desperately want to know where you guys live. Because I, I've done this all over the world, and every time I do that, maybe two people are standing, uh, and most people sit down pretty quickly. Uh, because obviously we can do a lot better. Next question. I drank alcohol at least once over the last week. Well, now we have our priorities straight. <laughs> I drank alcohol last night. <laughs> dare, dare I ask about this morning? <laughs> uh, I, okay, I'm glad that you all sat down. I am a proud Toronto Maple Leafs fan. Ooh. <laughs> Next question. That's, that's, stay standing. I'm not yet, I, didn't get, I believe in miracles. <laughs> Do you know she's still standing? <laughs> I have engaged in some type of risk-taking behavior at some point in my life. I have engaged in some type of risk-taking behavior at some point in my life. And if you are sitting down, that means you have never driven over the speed limit. You never had a drink before the age of majority, and you're not a parent, and you don't work in mental health. Okay. Um, I'm left-handed. It's lonely, isn't it? I believe that I will see significant positive and sustainable system change within youth mental health care within the next five years. Interesting. I firmly believe it. I firmly believe it. I speak French. Next question, I speak French well. <laughs> You're not sure? You can jump on one leg. Last question. I know someone in my personal life who's made suicidal comments, engaged in suicidal behavior, or who has died by suicide. Look around the room, folks. When I ask, I do, this with, I do this with psychiatrists, with teachers, with parents, with business people, but I also do it with youth. And when I do it with youth, I don't have them stand up and sit down. I have them move from one side of the room to the other. And when I ask that question, the room tips over. And they're all standing side by side, looking at each other, realizing this is the reality when we don't serve them well, when we don't meet young people's mental health needs when they have the needs. It's an outcome that we should be ashamed of that we should strive to do better about. It's an indicator of our system failures. So have a seat, folks. Thank you for indulging me in that. So 
Is it moving? Oh, it's not moving. I'll do it this way. Ah, what'd you do? I did, I did, it, okay, we're good. Thanks, Rebecca. She's a scientist. So some of these things you already know, I'm not gonna go through all of these, but, but we, we know that it's common, right? About one in five young people can suffer from mental health concern. Although we know that in terms of a disorder, by age 16, about 36%. And if you're looking at those who have mental health issues, maybe not a diagnosis, it's up to 50%. So this isn't a small problem, just affects a few people. Uh, we also know that if you ask adults who have a mental illness, 70% say it happened before the age of 18. So this is not something that happens to adults. It starts in childhood and it continues into adulthood. Um, a lot of people that have needs don't ever get service. About a third of those who have mental health problems never get service. Can you imagine if a third of people with cancer, only a third, went and got treatment? We wouldn't stand for that, not at all. And a lot of young people, when they enter the adult system, we'll talk a lot about this, drop out of services for a variety of reasons. Why aren't people using services? Well, we know the stigma is actually the number one reason that people don't, don't go and get help. About 63% of young people, when asked if they had a mental health concern, why, would they, would, why wouldn't they go get help? 63% say stigma, embarrassment, peer pressure would keep them from going and getting help. About 19% say they wouldn't go because they wouldn't know they had a problem. They don't know what typical is. They don't know what healthy is. About 12% tell us that they wouldn't know where to go for help, who's the right person to approach. We also know that people don't know the system very well, that there's a lot of lack of, of, of mental health literacy and system literacy. What's a problem? Where do you go for help? Uh, it's, it's not always clear what our care pathways are. So what's the role of education? What's the role of primary care? What happens if you're in the child welfare system and the youth justice system? How does that link up with the youth mental health system? Uh, we also know that there are long lines to get service. So if you wanted to see a psychiatrist, for example, at least in my community, it's not unusual that you wait over a year. And yet the psychiatrist isn't always the right person to go see, depending on what the, 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 the problem is. We do not meaningfully engage young people and families. We build systems to serve youth, but we don't necessarily ask youth how we should do it. Or parents, when a system's not working by default, families are the system navigators. And yet, we don't necessarily ask families how to build it right. And that should be a critical component. And the last thing, and the thing we're focusing on today, is too often when youth are transitioning from the childhood youth to the adult system, it's like falling off a cliff. We don't have a seamless system. We have parallel systems, or we have systems that are like changing countries and learning new languages in terms of being able to serve people. So this, this slide is, is one that shows the burden of a disease and how much it, it, it takes its toll on personal suffering and, and system. And if you see that, that those two black lines between about 12 to 25, that's the greatest burden in terms of the mental health needs. It's a critical time. At different ages, there are different things. But for mental health, the biggest burden of illness is between actually 12 and 25. If you look at our capacity to meet the need, the biggest service gap in terms of what do we have to meet those needs, the biggest gap actually exists between 16 and 24. We do the poorest job for those who perhaps need it the most. Often, historically, and I, I've worked in hospitals all my life, 
Uh, I'm a clinician, I'm a, I'm a researcher. We have systems that are built at this magic 18-year thing. I don't know why it exists, but all of a sudden at 18, the world changes. Everything changes, and there's no real logic to that. Because developmentally, one 18-year-old isn't at all like another 18-year-old. You can have a 25-year-old who functions more like a 14-year-old, and a 13-year-old who functions more like a 30-year-old. It varies tremendously, and yet we believe there's something magical about your 18th birthday. Congratulations, you're screwed. <laughs> so if you look at the reality, though, in terms of what we know, uh, during that period of time, it's the biggest time for the apparition of mental health concerns, lots of personal changes, interpersonal changes, social changes. We also know it's the highest burden of disease. We just talked about that. It's where the system is at the weakest. And we also know that if we do something right, we can put people on the right trajectory to wellness. And if we do something wrong, we actually put them on a trajectory of perhaps some chronic problems that's gonna affect their family life, their vocational life, their physical health, and their mental health. So right now, we know, for example, that there are huge increases in demands for services. I've been involved with Bell Let's Talk for a number of, of years, and it's really good, right? Stigma's going down. Well, if stigma goes down, that means more people are looking for help. We haven't helped change the help system yet to meet the actual need. So now we're having young people knock on doors, and sometimes it's just emergency room doors, and when they get there, then what? It's a Band-Aid sometimes. It doesn't necessarily provide the help we actually need. We're seeing huge increases in demands for services. Uh, we see it as a priority in secondary schools. We're seeing it as a priority in post-secondary education. And we're also seeing that if we don't deal with this, it affects our workforce. There is an economic bottom line. There's a business case. If we don't do this well, we're jeopardizing our economy in terms of people that can actually actively contribute to our country. There are lots of transitions that we can think of, and I'm just going to mention some that we're going to focus on one. And the one that we're going to focus on first is that child to adult health and mental health systems. But there are also other ones, like from community care to specialized care and back again. So when you go to a hospital to get specialized help, you don't live in the hospital for the rest of your life. You go back to your community or you go back to your school. So school to care, then back again. What happens when you go to the emergency room? Most people go to the emergency room for a short period of time, then they're released back. It doesn't solve the problem. It might solve an acute situation, but it's not necessarily a pathway to care. And think about life transitions from school to work life, if, if that's what's going to happen. And all the predictable things that happen in terms of people that are getting older that become parents themselves, and the impact of not dealing with this issue on passing it along to the next generation of children and youth. So I'm going to talk specifically about my impressions, at least, about the differences between the child system and the emerging adult system. So in the child system, usually it's the parent that calls the shots and initiates things, makes the referral, and goes into the sessions with the parent. In the adult system, you're, it's self-initiated. You go, and they expect to talk to you. That's it, alone. There's a limited autonomy in the child system, and you're expected to be autonomous in the adult system, to take responsibility for your own stuff. In the child system, the school tends to know you well because you've been in that school for a while, you have a personality. Well, there's post-secondary anonymity, where often you go into first year university or college, you're one of hundreds of students, and now you have a number rather than a name. 
and they're not going to pick you up and know you well enough to know when you're not doing well. Uh, <clears throat> uh, 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 in the child system, most mental health problems are relevant. So if you have a problem, they're going to treat it. In the adult system, what used to be a problem in the child system isn't severe enough to get help in the adult system. The rules change. So now you have to be sicker to get help. And if you're really lucky, you're going to get really sick and get really good help, which is completely wrong. Um, the, I worked in a children's hospital. There's a culture there in a children's hospital. We dress up for Halloween. We dress up for Christmas. Everybody's friendly. In the adult system, it's an adult culture. And you might end up, if you're an 18-year-old, being in the same ward with someone who's 75 with Alzheimer's. It doesn't quite fit anymore. I skipped over one, but usually in the child system, it's age appropriate. You understand that young kids need different things in adolescence. In the adult system, it's not age appropriate. It's like a 70-year age range that you're dealing with. Uh, children's hospitals are kind of cool and friendly. In the adult system, we're talking about psychiatric hospitals that are scary and foreboding. Uh, in the child system, it's a period of relative change. In the adult system, period of significant change. In the child system, the people are developmentally sensitive. They're trained to be aware of developmental changes. In the adult system, they're all trained to deal with the adults, and not the fact that there are some subtle differences. So we have some problems when you look at one versus the other. I used to be, um, in a previous life, the dialysis psychologist. I worked in a dialysis unit, kids who had kidney failure that had to be hooked up to machines. And when they were transitioning to the adult system, we started preparing them two years in advance. And we'd have relationships and conversations with the adult providers. We'd go visit. We took it very seriously. How much preparation do you think a 17 and 3 quarter year old who's been getting mental health care in the child system gets to be transferred to the adult system? I think they get, uh, yeah, a phone number or a referral, but not necessarily the right kind of preparation. I get worked up. So, I want you to look at this, and I want you to pick one blue ball and follow it. Just, oh, sorry, try to follow it. Okay? It's kind of fun slide, right? <laughs> now I want you to picture that blue ball and pretend that it's you. And you're trying to get help for a problem, and this is you and how you're, you're getting to that help, okay? And maybe it's not such a fun slide anymore. Now pretend it's not you, pretend it's your child. Being shoved, pushed, discarded, swung around, and the goal is you want to have a good outcome at the end. What are the chances you're ever going to get there? And do you think this is understandable from anyone? This is actually much more understandable than a lot of the systems we have in place, because you can get it all in one picture. Imagine how you feel when you're trying to navigate that. Uh, I'm going to try this, because I do believe you can change the system, but here's one of the challenges. Some people like to climb mountains. I like to build planes in the air. I grew up wanting to be on a wing, wanting to be up this high. Sometimes the temperature up at altitude will reach 60 below. It's brisk, it's refreshing. You never know what you're going to come across up here. Canadian geese, mallards, owls. These people back here, that's why I come to work. That's why I build airplanes in the sky. We're not just building a plane here. We're building a dream. I love this job. I look at a lot of banks up here. When I look over there and I see that little kid, and I look in his eyes, I saw the banks I need. 
3DS, managing the complexities of the digital economy. A lot of us are trying to change the system. Now, unfortunately, we can't press a button and stop the system while we fix it. We actually have to fix it while it's still running. We have to build the airplane while it's still in the air, which is a challenge. We can't stop, close up shop, and say, I'm sorry, we're not going to treat any young people for the next two years while we try to get our act together and then open it up again. So change is going to be tough through that process, and we have to be aware of that. So a lot of things that are happening in the Canadian context, in terms of, of looking at the needs of young people in particular and transitional age youth, it's exploding. So we know that the research community is looking at patient-oriented research as a priority. Uh, philanthropic organizations and uh, foundations are starting to invest money to make a change a change in the system. There's something called Access Open Minds, and you're going to have someone on the panel that's affiliated very closely with that in terms of making some significant change in a massive national research study about access. The Mental Health Commission of Canada has done some significant work, consultations around the country about what are the issues for transitional age youth that are trying to move through systems and have listened to young people and to families from across the country. Uh, right now, there's a massive amount of conversation happening in post-secondary mental health. How do we get it right for those that are entering college and university, or those that are in graduate school, for example? Huge stressful time. And think about all the things that are going on for those that go to, sometimes far away, away from home, and all their supports, to go to an environment where they might face lots of adversity for the first time. There are, uh, it's on the federal agenda. Uh, I have the privilege of being on the Federal Minister of Health's Mental Health Advisory. And she is very interested in youth mental health and transitional youth mental health and wants to do something significant. And we're trying to tell her what to do. And she's actually listening. So hopefully the listening will turn into action and we will keep pushing her in that regard. And there's a lot of emerging great ideas that are happening. And we'll talk about some of them. But integrated youth services seems to be one of those good ideas. And uh, I think you're going to probably hear some announcements in your promise uh, sometime soon. But it's already up and running in British Columbia, in Ontario, in New Brunswick. I know that uh, uh, Quebec has announced that they're going in this direction. I know the conversations are happening in a lot of other provinces. And there are multiple places all over Canada that historically have done some really good work. They are the best kept secrets in the country. They are hidden gems because no one is sharing those stories right across the country. I'm going to skip that. So where are people doing it well? So right now, there are some places like in Australia, there's a program called Headspace. And they have like 110 sites now around the country where they've looked at doing things differently for young people. They have created programs for 12 to 25-year-olds. So they've actually erased that transition period by focusing in on it and providing developmentally appropriate services, mental health, addictions, social support services in that, in that window. Jigsaw is the equivalent in Ireland, and they're doing some very important work. And I mentioned some of the ones that are happening in different provinces right now. So right now in Canada, uh, we are starting to see where some of these hidden gems are. And this gives you a sense of some of the sites that are emerging across Canada. And around the world, they're already starting to emerge. And we've been able to identify close to 400 sites so far that are doing this kind of integrated work. Uh, and it's, it's all about relationships in terms of learning from these folks. So when we talk about integrated services, what are some of the, the key ingredients? Well, you know, first of all, this is something that's community owned. It has to be start with a community. And you have to have partnerships in a community. So in Ireland, where they have jigsaw sites, 
If you try to take a jigsaw site out of a community, it becomes a political issue. Politicians lose their jobs when you take that service away. It's so embedded in a community. Uh, youth engagement at all levels and all activities and family engagement at all levels and all activities is essential. You don't build it and then check to see if it's the right thing with families. You involve families and young people the first meetings to get it right. Better chance it's going to be used appropriately. Uh, there are usually some kind of a place where people go, so it's a community-based place. They don't go to the hospital. They go to a place that makes sense for young people. And in many communities, it's the young people that tell you where they want the place to be. So it's easily accessible. Lots of, 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 of policies in terms of how to make it work. So if you want to reach youth, is the best time to have the service open from 9 to 4? Well, a lot of my colleagues only work you know, 9 to 4, or 8 to 4, 9 to 5. If you really want to make things that are accessible to youth, it's after 3 and on Saturdays which means you have to change how you organize your workforce. So staffing issues, union issues. And how do you practice in a youth-friendly way so that when the young people come in, maybe like that children's hospital where people wear funny costumes on Halloween, you feel accepted right away and welcome right away. And do you have to wait? Most of these programs are creating walk-in clinics where you don't wait. You just go in and services available from the get-go. Can you imagine if a young person talks to their parents and says, you know, I'm really struggling with depression. They've had the courage to say, I really don't know what to do anymore. And you can go the next day and walk into somewhere and get service. In my province, for the longest time, that would happen and you make a referral. And if you're lucky, if you're lucky, you get seen within a year. Unless you're suicidal, in which case you go to the emergency room and you get seen after eight hours. And then you still don't necessarily get service after that. So that's a big game changer. So uh, why is youth engagement important? I've dedicated most of my career to looking at youth engagement in terms of practice and also research. We know that when youth are engaged in meaningful ways, they are healthier physically, they are healthier mentally, they engage in less risk-taking behavior, and they have less suicidal thoughts and suicidal behavior. When youth are bigger, part of something bigger than their problems, that sense of identity and belonging protects them from so many things. It creates a social supportive network that follows them wherever they go. And it, it sometimes it's that social network that facilitates them getting help when they're not sure they want to get help themselves. So it's very, very key. Uh, when I talk about, about integrated services, it's not just mental health, it's primary care. Sometimes people come in for sexual health and someone's checking their mental health. Or they're coming in for housing or vocational supports. And you can get the whole ball of wax in one place. And by the way, it's not just having people sharing the space. It's sharing their working together and wrapping around the young person and working as a team to support that young person. Uh, most of these models are now evaluating to make sure that it actually works. In other words, they want data to convince government to keep investing in this so it's not just a pilot project. So data is very, very critical. And sharing of data becomes an issue as well. How do you do that across sectors? So these are some of the kinds of, of uh, services that are involved in an integrated youth service. Uh, technology is now, you can't, you'll never have a hub, a physical location in every community in Canada. It's not possible. So how do we use technology to create virtual hubs to link young people to health promotion ideas or inter intervention kinds of supports or peer support? 
and peer support is a very big part of this as well. Stepped care. Does anybody know what stepped care is? So stepped care is basically if you go in, rather than getting in line to seeing the most high-priced person, maybe a psychiatrist, that everyone's waiting to see the big bottleneck, it's what's the right level of support that you need at the right time. So if you go, who here has ever had a headache? How many of you have seen a neurosurgeon for your headache? Well, the first step you take is maybe take medicine. And it persists, maybe you go see a family doc and they might have some other things. And eventually, if it's severe enough, you might go see a specialist, a neurologist, whatever. But you don't start with the high-priced help. In mental health, too often we go to the head of the line, or we think we have to go to the head of the line. Stepped care is the right level of care at the right time by the right individual to meet your need. And sometimes you only need that much. And you can get it in one or two sessions. Sometimes you need more. This means those that have more complex needs get the more specialized service providers. And those that get less, have less need still get support for the, what they actually need. And it could come in a variety of different uh, ways. So that's an actually a much more, assist, uh, a, a much more uh, uh, efficient system, but it's not perfect. Because we don't have all the steps for all the players. Um, implementation, it's not just about having a good idea. Having a good idea and say go and change doesn't work. Because people start something and then they abandon it because they don't stick to it. So how do you help people start something new so it can be sustained over time? It becomes a real culture shift and is sustained. And then how do you, how do you brand this? Anybody, any coffee drinkers here? Where do you go for coffee? Who goes to Tim Hortons? Who goes to Starbucks? So you have a place that you go, it's pretty easy to find. Where do you go for mental health? What's the Starbucks or the Tim Hortons of mental health? Do we have one? Is the brand that recognizable, especially by young people? Probably not. So this is the step care kind of picture, right care, right time. So there's a lot of information here, but who's making sure that we can share what we're learning across all these different players, these different countries? And, and, and how can we make better use of what we already know as opposed to reinventing the wheel and wasting resources to reinvent things that maybe have worked elsewhere? And who helps to develop those partnerships among those who might have some of those ideas in, in Ireland or in, in, in different parts of Canada or in Australia? And how do you actually make sure that things don't just stop at a border, whether it's a city border or a provincial border or a national border? And how do we actually all learn together? So that the, the, when, the, when the Atlantic provinces, the, the analogy is when the, when the tides come in, all the boats rise at the same time. So how do we make sure that all the programs can rise at the same time because they have access to the same information to help guide their work? So one of the things that I do, one of the jobs that I have, I lead something called Frame. It's an international network that looks exactly at this stuff. What are the best ideas that have emerged all over the world and how can we make better use of what we already know? And what we don't know, the gaps in what we know, how do we point that to, into, to researchers so that they go do research on that to fill that knowledge gap? So you know, our, our focus is really we want to make things better for young people, right? We want them to have access to the help they need when they need it in the context in which they live. And contexts differ. Communities are different. I've, I've, I've learned now that Calgary's a little bit different than Edmonton. Uh, and we focus on, on integrated youth mental health care and stepped care. And the way we do it is, first of all, we look at, at, at trying to get a sense of, first, everything is in, is in partnership, but what's the evidence? What's the knowledge that exists out there? We go looking for it everywhere. But then we also 
integrated knowledge exchange, having a research paper doesn't really help people that much. I don't know how many of you speak researchese, but it's like Greek. Okay, so how do you take that and translate it into a way that makes sense for a service provider, for a policymaker, for a funder? And then the implementation stuff, we don't assume that just having the knowledge is going to work, and that's why we help people bring it to scale. We guide them through the process so they can implement it with fidelity, with sustainability. And all of this is done in partnership with other people. It's never done alone, and we evaluate the heck out of everything to make sure we're doing it right. This man right here is my great-grandfather. He's the first cat herder in our family. Herding cats. Don't let anybody tell you it's easy. Anybody can herd cattle. Holding together 10,000 half-wild short hairs, well, that's another thing altogether. Being a cat herder is probably about the toughest thing I think I've ever done. I got this one this morning, right here. And if you look at his face, it's it just ripped to shreds, you know? You see the movies, you hear the stories, it's... I'm living a dream. Not everyone can do what we do. I wouldn't do nothing else. It ain't an easy job, but when you bring a herd into town and you ain't lost a one of them, ain't a feeling like it in the world. EDS, managing the complexities of the digital economy. So it's a little bit like cat herding, like bringing all these people together, getting them to agree, they're going off in different directions, they have different rules, different languages, different cultures, and it's a bit of a mess, uh, and it's hard work. So we do a lot of different projects as part of our, our frame initiative. I'm not gonna go through all of these, uh, but you will see that a peer support is very key as one of the priority areas. We're learning the power of people with lived experience to help supplement our systems of care. Uh, we are looking at technology. We are co-developing uh, things with indigenous communities. We're looking at schools as an avenue for this. The important links to vocational support. Youth and family engagement, huge again. Central to everything that we do. Uh, and, and, and when we look about doing this right, and I don't know if you can see this very well, but it takes a lot of different players. It takes researchers, it takes you know, academics and communities, family and young people, it takes philanthropy and government. And, and those communities that have done it successfully have had a whole community approach. No one person is responsible. Everybody is responsible. And by contributing together and breaking down some of the silos, you can actually make change happen. And I've seen it happen. I've seen more alignment and partnership in the last five years than in the previous 30 in the work that I've done. So there's a moment in time we should take advantage of. Now, change is good, you go first. Change is really hard to do. I'm gonna ask you a question. If I had an amazing idea, and I said it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, and I, like, I promise you, how many would try it? Don't be shy. Guaranteed it's gonna work, guaranteed. Okay, put your hands down. Now let's tell me, I say, I can guarantee you that what you're doing right now, on a database, sucks and doesn't work. Who'd stop right away? The reality is, it's much harder to stop what you're already doing and giving up something that you believe works mm -hmm. than to try something new. And if you're a teacher or if you're a physician or if you're a government person who's very risk averse, some of us were in government before, we won't name any names, Denise, but uh, it's hard to change, we're risk averse. So change management becomes a big piece in this. And, what's, and sometimes we change because there's been a crisis. Someone dies. 
or a company lose, leaves town and, you, and the financial thing takes a nosedive, or a government changes, whatever. Change, sometimes there's something that provokes change. But we need to manage change and think about change. And change is not all about money. If you throw money at stuff, but you keep doing what you've always done, that means you keep doing the wrong thing more sometimes. It's a bad investment. Some of the biggest things that I've done in my life don't have money attached to them. It's a good idea that we worked hard at, we demonstrated that it worked, and eventually it resulted in some resources, but that's not where it started. It started because of a common vision, an idea that people bought into, people becoming passionate and forcing change to happen. So we're going to skip that. So what's it going to take? Well, we need new models. We need new evidence to guide us. And we know those models exist. It takes courage, courageous leadership. It takes political will. Governments at some point have to be involved to change their policies. Governments don't lead. Governments are supposed to follow. You folks should be holding government accountable for their role to serve these needs. Governments don't lead. The change readiness I already talked about, it takes long-term vision. It's not a pilot project. It's not let's try it for a year and see. If you're really gonna change systems, especially for transitional age youth and mental health, you have to have at least a 10-year vision. Because change takes a minimum of five years to actually take hold. A 10-year vision. No government is, starts with a 10-year mandate, by the way. So that has to transcend terms in office. Your vision has to be one that's probably all party, all government, all community. And that's where you can have real change happen. That's what happened in Australia. That's what happened in Ireland. That's what's going to happen in Canada as well. And we have to be willing to collaborate. True collaboration means you don't compete anymore. True collaboration means we put all of our stuff in a pile and we share it, including power, including money, including credit. And that's hard for a lot of our systems to do. But when we do that, we actually all benefit from that. Those become community assets to serve our young people better. It's messy. It's not easy to do. We're going to make mistakes. Every group that I've seen around the world that's done this has made mistakes. The good news is they're willing to share with us the mistakes that they've made so we don't make the same mistake. Evidence isn't just about things that work. Evidence is also about things that don't work that you can avoid. So I do believe that when I is replaced by we, even illness can become wellness. So when we start doing this together, we can change the whole dialogue. So with that, I'm going to stop. I thank you for your attention, and I'll pass it over to Leslie. Oh, thank you. Wasn't that incredible? Thank you so much. Okay. <laughs> and um, Ian, I'm going to ask you to come and oh, join us at the panel. I guess I'm going to sit down. <laughs> You've got to sit down now. Do so, I sit anywhere? Uh, in the middle would be I fantastic. I sit in the middle. We want him in the middle. Center of attention. Uh, so what a fantastic way to, uh, to begin uh, the discussion now. You have outlined, I, I can't think of anything that you could have missed. Now we're going to talk about personal experience, what some of this actually looks like, and, uh, and look at uh, digging into some of the solutions that you talked about, some of the issues, and exactly what they look like on a personal level. Uh, so we are going to begin with, um, with uh, Candice uh, I'm sorry. You know what? I promised I wouldn't do that. Cadence. Uh, Cadence Ralston. 
Uh, she has personal lived experience in Alberta's mental health system from childhood, as a youth, and now as a young adult. She's a U of A student studying chemistry, psychology, and neuroscience. She's also, uh, very impressive, also a member of the Cassie Youth Council, and she's co-chair of uh, Unseen Magazine on the subcommittee. I don't know if you've seen that magazine or not, but it's excellent. So we are just absolutely delighted to have you. Thank you so much for coming and, and sharing your experience. Um, so, uh, so you're now, uh, you've come through a transition, and you've got a lot to say about that, but let's go back and take a look at some of your journey through the system. Uh, you were diagnosed at a young age. Yes, so when I was three years old, I was, like, my parents were told that when I was older, I'd probably be diagnosed with OCPD. Um, it kind of has affected my life, but later on when I hit high school, I was diagnosed with PTSD. Um, I was a victim of sexual assault and rape and other kinds of abuse for over a few years in high school. And so I came out of that with PTSD and a lot of anxiety. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then, uh, but the, the, some of the issues you said really began when you made the transition, when you changed 18. Everything changed. Ian, you talked about falling off a cliff. Um, and, uh, and that analogy is sort of what you described to me. Yeah, so um, my first year at university about four years ago, um, I had been 18 for about a week or two, and I ended up in an emergency room after almost completing an attempt of suicide. So right off the bat, um, fall off the cliff, I didn't have any access to services. Right after I got out of the hospital, um, I still didn't have anything. I got a card with the helpline on it, and I didn't have any access to care. I didn't have a psychiatrist, nothing. So, but you were told that you would have access. Yes, um, they, told me, they told me that I could um, access a psychologist at the U of A. Um, I tried to get into there. It took a few months, and um, now since I've been seeing them, it still takes, it's like one appointment every two months. Wow. At one point did you tell me that you had to drop out of school? to try and get access to more services? Um, no, that was a concussion. That was a Sorry. concussion, yeah. <laughs> Doctor before Christmas. Yes. Um, so uh, so um, you said that one of the things, you wish you had done certain things before you turned 18 that would have made a difference in, in your experience after. Yeah, so um, once I got to U of A and realized there wasn't really any services, um, I decided that I wish I would have not gone to that school. Um, there is an accessibility services. I didn't even get access until my, this year. Um, they're still not very good. They charge like $600 to complete one final um, in a room that has other people in it. Um, yeah. <laughs> There's not a lot of services available to you. I would have um, understood that I should have taken less courses at the beginning and worked my way up instead of getting overwhelmed. I would have built a support network because I had none going into university. So you didn't have anybody advocating on your behalf? No. Yeah. Did you feel really alone? Did you, did you know other people were going through similar challenges with transition? Um, I didn't know, but you don't really know who's around you, especially at such a big school. There's so many people there and um, Either there's, like you said, hundreds of students, and you're, you're giving a number, nobody knows who you are, you don't really know anybody, so. Yeah, and what, uh, what point are you at now? 
Um, now I'm in a better place. I know how to handle myself. I also have a really amazing partner who's able to help me through those things, even though it's quite challenging. Um, she just got married. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I know myself a lot better. Like I know I need to be like working out. Um, I train a lot in CrossFit and running, so I know I need to do that every day or else I go a little haywire. <laughs> And, and you're really involved in the Youth Council at CASA. What has that done for you? What have you learned through that? Um, it's made me a lot more passionate about helping other people. I've heard all these other really more horrific stories about what people have gone through, even in transitioning to a yeah. different system. And I've seen all the spaces that things can be helped and like how much youth, like especially people my age, can actually help to change the system. Do you see things that you've learned there that you kind of wish that you could, that you could talk to youth here or talk to parents about that would, would have made a difference for you that might make a difference for them? Yeah, I would have looked into my options on what to do when choosing a school, um, different like programs to get involved in. I would have looked for a psychologist or treatment program before I had gone into university rather than turn 18 and they kind of drop you off but you don't know where to go. I would have looked into that, like things like that. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Cadence, and we're going to continue that discussion, but I'd like to now introduce our next panelist. Uh, Lori Erickson has lived experience as a parent and a caregiver who has navigated Alberta's children and youth mental health services, and that has motivated her to be an advocate for a very strong advocate for trauma-informed, family-centered care. She is also an active member of CASA's Parent Advisory Council, and you've been doing that for four years now, because she believes that the council's efforts are very important in bringing a family voice to CASA's treatment and planning programs. Lori has two teenage sons, and is beginning the process of transitioning them to adult services. Thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, you, uh, I remember you said that, um, that uh, you know, you wanted to be a part of changing the system, and as a parent, you'd been through a lot, and that's why you decided that you wanted to, uh, to be involved in, in talking about some of the experiences that you went through as a parent. Um, tell us about, uh, you've got two sons, very different uh, scenarios, and uh, one of them who's transitioning to 18. Yes. I have a son that's 19, and he yeah. decided to take another year of high school because we weren't quite ready for this transition journey. Um, he's diagnosed with autism, and he attends regular high school, but in a classroom that kind of caters to his mental, social, emotional needs. Um, and we'll be done that in June, and we're not sure where, what the future holds for him. Uh, he's had full funding through FSCD since he was five and diagnosed. And since he's turned 18, um, all of his financial and um, social kind of programs um, were discontinued because he is, has too high an IQ. So um, what uh, the programs we found for him for after school are really limited to a lot of people that have funding through uh, persons with disabilities. And so those extra things like um, people coming with you to classes just help keep you organized, help you figure out your schedules and just check in with your mental health, which he's had. Um, none of those would be readily available to him. Um, 
and a lot of the continuing education information sessions we'll go to, uh, we'll, he'll be really excited, oh well, yeah, I want to do this, and I want to try this program, and they're telling you, yes, we'll help you, but then we find out, no, he doesn't qualify. So. So if you want to have access to certain programs, I mean, there are ways to get reimbursed, but it's really challenging uh, once, you, once you move into that transition. And just finding the situation that would fit, fit his needs is really hard. Yeah. Like so, finding that information. That's why I think it's so important to come together and get the youth perspective and, and get as much information as possible as you can um, from people that have gone through it and and done it um, because it looks good on paper is <laughs> not always the lived experience that you're going to come up against. So one of the things that uh, that's huge for a parent uh, of uh, a child that's transitioning to the adult system, uh, you know, there's there are certain fears that you have. Um, you know, one of them you talked about was, you know, uh, who's that child going to associate with when when they're no longer, you know, when they're sort of out on their own. Uh, sexual assault um, is one of the fears. Um, you talked about some other fears as well. What are some of the fears that you have as your child transitions? Uh, just because of their age, um, like you mentioned yeah. in your talk, when they ter magically turn 18, they're supposed to know how to deal yeah. with everything. <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that he has been surrounded with such good, wonderful care. He has um, friends and social groups and, and uh, other adults besides his parents that we've formed this community, and that's going to disappear for him. And so where do we begin to try and um, build that and help him make those connections on his own? Mm -hmm. Because even though he has these struggles, he still wants to be independent. He wants to be an adult. He wants to have a voice. And, his future, and um, right now we don't have that network of who he can bounce ideas off and what his future will look like. And even simple things as far as um, his medical needs and his um, psychiatrist needs, because he doesn't have that extra funding, he goes right back to the regular general population and um, doesn't have those caretakers that know specifically. Um, what might trigger his autism. But right now, it's just a mental health care provider. We were at the same one for 10 years. And um, it is a phone call, here you go. The same you know, provider for 10 years, and, and you're given a phone call. And actually, in his case, we had told, been told we could continue care in that clinic. And um, we actually got a phone call saying, no, I won't be able to keep you. Try these people. So he wasn't offered an opportunity to say goodbye to that service provider. And it took us three months to get back into them. And I made the appointment and said, we're just coming to say goodbye. Like, he needs to know that he didn't do something wrong, that he didn't, um, there's nothing, you know, that um, we have to move on. And it was a really hard, hard thing for us. So. And we're still looking for a GP because no one will take on someone with autism because they think it's so scary. And it's if we can get back to that, we're all just people looking for services and looking to um, take care of ourselves. So, 
Family Council, you hear a lot of stories about what other parents are going through. Is this a story that, is this a similar story, similar pattern with other parents? Um, there's, the thing about Family Council is there's so many of us coming from different prog programs that we've accessed through CASA. Mm -hmm. There's the trauma program, there's, um, so our stories are all very, very different, mm -hmm. but we're all coming together um, to work to more family-centered care. Mm -hmm. And so um, my story, my son actually really doesn't mind hanging out with his parents, so we're quite lucky still. <laughs> but um, there, I, my heart breaks because there, there are people um, and parents there that have a, a different dynamic that they're dealing with that their children, you know, are pulling away from them and they're trying to ease their transition into adulthood and um, maybe don't quite have as much influence as my situation. So they're really falling off that cliff because that person has decided they're 18 and they're going to go and live their life. So um, it's not about controlling them. It's about, you know, giving them a voice in their care. And uh, that's something we've tried to do. I've tried to do early on was um, always make sure my kids know I'm not making you do this. Like, we're going to see this person to see how they can help our family. And if we try and keep that group, you know, we're gonna see what we can do for all of us to see what will work for you so that they feel like they have a voice in their treatment from the time they're a child to a teen. And then when they're an adult, maybe they'll be able to use their voice and we could just be the backup in that situation. What so. ideal. Would that have helped you to have family that, that really, uh, Cadence, who, really supported you as you were making your transition? Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, I'm going to move on to our final panel, uh, panelists to join the conversation. Um, this is Catherine Hay, and uh, actually, Catherine, I think the presentation was designed just for you. <laughs> if that, yeah. So uh, Catherine is a program manager for uh, Young Adult Services in the Edmonton Zone, Addiction and Mental Health Program, and I need my reading glasses. Um, she has her master's degree in occupational therapy, a passion for youth and the young adult population group, and a special interest in the role of employment and education in recovery health promotion. Catherine is the Edmonton operational lead of an exciting research pro program that is looking at a new model of care for mental health through integrated services. And you heard Ian mention Access Open Minds. Um, and she, as I mentioned, is the Edmonton lead. Access Open Minds is a pan-Canadian research and evaluation network. It promises major innovation in how youth mental health services in Canada are designed, delivered, and evaluated in Edmonton as one of 14 sites across the country that's participating. So we're really pleased to have you. And, um, and it's interesting because um, you described this program as kind of a one-stop shop. And when you walk in the door, you know that something's different about this. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> all right, thanks for having me. And um, I want to say thank you to Cadence and, and Lori for your comments. I think that, as Ian mentioned, like the information that comes from youth and their families is something that we also try to take really, really seriously as we build uh, things to look a little bit differently in our system. So Access Open Minds um, 
is a national research project and it's the first iteration of an integrated youth service in the Edmonton zone. It's not an integrated youth service yet, but it's the first iteration um, moving in that direction. So Alberta Health Services is the lead at the moment in providing a youth-centered walk-in clinic at the Bill Reese YMCA. Uh, it's open not quite every Saturday, but 12 till 6, uh, Tuesday to Fridays. And we were open Saturdays for a while, but ran into some operational issues. So people Who can I talk to to help with that? <laughs> yeah. I, we're talking to I'm them not right shy now. about talking to people to make that happen. We are having lots and lots of conversations in the Edmonton zone, um, as well as across the province, with all levels of kind of administration and service providers, as well as our foundation, so our philanthropic communities, our government, organizations like FRAME, um, our network through Access Open Minds, and I think that uh, it's a really exciting time to be working in this field, and really there's so much opportunity as we all kind of move in the same direction, that we're all going to kind of get on the same plane, I think, eventually, and then continue to build that plane as we, as we fly. So it's very exciting, but we have a ways to go and we need to do it together. So this is more than a research project. You're actually treating people right now at this center. Give us an idea of what it looks like. So you walk in the door and you, you know, what, 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 what does this look like? How does it work? So we had a youth council do tours of particular locations that we could open at, and they selected the Bill Reese YMCA, which is a, their community services building downtown is a pretty nondescript building. They have a school and some outreach programs that are offered by the YMCA, and I think a Weight Watchers program, and <laughs> there's a number of different, uh, different services that are provided at the Y. So they, the people who toured the youth really uh, stressed the fact that it was very non-stigmatizing to walk into the building. No one would know why you were going there. It didn't say ADAC, even though ADAC doesn't exist, the sign still does. It doesn't say ADAC on the side of the building. It didn't say this is Addiction and Mental Health Services. Um, it's pretty low key, and it's kind of a location where young people go in and out of anyway. Um, when you walk in, yeah, it's not much like a, a normal health clinic, so it's there's couches, it's decorated with the colors and selections that the youth picked. Um, lots of Ikea furniture. <laughs> um, so it looks pretty neat. Uh, the clinicians all work pretty much on laptops. There's no like, you sit on that side of the desk and I'll sit on this side of the desk and you can tell me what you think is wrong and I'll tell you what you need to do to get better. Um, the, it's really a different space and it's one of the biggest um, pieces of feedback that we get from youth that walk in or young adults is that it just feels so much different. We have uh, two intake workers who are there who are psychologists and we have always have a peer support worker. So we have two peer support workers, usually one's in the clinic and one is in the community. And we have an addiction counselor who's there uh, a couple times a week. And we have, yeah, some other types of services that I think allow us to be able to listen to the person who walks in the door about what they actually think they need and really honor that expertise that they bring about themselves. So they come in and say, I think I just need a job and everything else is going to be okay. Then we're able to say, okay, we can help you with that. And I think that that needs to grow and continue, but we don't say, 
well, actually, I think you should see an addiction counselor. Actually, I'm going to refer you to a mental health therapist. We're able to say, okay, you know what, if this is what you think is important right now for you, we're going to really try to meet that demand. And that is very different than our adult system. Mm -hmm. Because in our adult system, we definitely have little lineups that you can get in um, that are based on what we think you need as opposed to what you think you need. And I think that accounts for a lot of the disengagement that we see with our young adults because they do know themselves better than we do. And I think we need to honor that. So we try to do that at the clinic. So I think it's partly the physical feel of the clinic and then the culture that's been created there where it's very empowering and client-centered. So. And also the services. So you can get all services in one place instead of going from one place to the other. Not quite Or is that yet. the theory? That's coming. <laughs> That's what the idea is. That's like where we all have to get on the plane. So um, it's a big plane. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so we're in, in. I would say we're at the beginning of developing that. Um, yeah. When I look to the future, I think a couple of things. I think that health probably shouldn't be the drivers of um, an integrated youth system. I think that it. Right now, the way we're positioned because of the research project, we kind of are wearing that hat, but I would be very happy to step back. I think that we need community partners to come together and us be a very key partner, clearly, but not, I don't think we should be the drivers or the pilots of the plane. Um, we should just be on it, going in the same direction. So the services that we provide are really kind of those higher steps of care because we are a clinical service. We're the addiction and mental health teams. So we tend to provide clinical services. And I think that we need those other services to really round out what an integrated youth hub could look like. Mm -hmm. So we do have a wide variety of, of service options that are available, but we're missing partnerships with children's services. We're missing partnerships with our housing agencies, we're missing kind of other variations or other steps of care that people might be able to access before going to see a psychiatrist. And we tend to have that piece covered more than the other side, which is backwards yeah. and upside down. But So not everything is offered at the moment, but I think the next version of, of what we're hoping to accomplish in, in Edmonton and really hopefully the province would be um, where there would be an availability of basically those wide range of integrated services and that one-stop shop. We've been limited by lots of different factors, but yeah. Hmm. So. so one of the things that, uh, that you spoke about and that you've spoken about with, uh, with Access is the fact that you know, we need to move the needle in terms of the age. Uh, instead of the falling off a cliff at age 18, you're talking about that magic number of moving things up, like a transitioning up to 25. Is that something that's coming? Is that happening? I mean, it's clearly on the radar. It's happening in certain jurisdictions. Yeah. Uh, certain, I mean, in the government of Ontario, I, I, one of the hats I was wearing was advising them on things, and they, they wanted a definition of youth. So we went across our international network, and yeah. people were saying 12 to 25, but don't just go by age, go by developmental no. status. What do the people really need? Mm -hmm. Don't go by a birthday. Mm -hmm. Go by how they're functioning. And your system should be flexible enough to actually appreciate that. To know that, you have to have a developmental lens. Mm -hmm. And our systems don't tend to do that. Now, in certain jurisdictions, it's like in British Columbia now, they do have 12 to 25 in, mm -hmm. in the foundry sites. In, in New Brunswick, they've kind of shoved up their age to 21 and they aspire to go up to 25, and they're negotiating for that. Ontario, they go up to 25 in certain 
on these hubs, but that means you have multiple ministries that have to share their money. Yes. Right? And then they have to share some of the responsibility and authority, and sometimes you have to change the law, the legislation. So those things are harder to do, but if you have the right appetite, there's laws change all the time. So you can make those shifts, yeah. but some people still don't believe that that's the way to go. They don't think, oh, what's different? I mean, 25-year-old, that's an adult. 24-year-old, that's an adult. 19-year-old, that's an adult. 18-year-old in one day, that's an adult. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, it's not, not always. Often, they're struggling a lot. And people are starting to see, we have to look at this in a very, very, very different way. Well, you mentioned examples. There are examples. You mentioned Ireland, yep. Australia. Yep. What does that look like, and what can we learn from that? So uh, in what they've found in Australia and, and in Ireland, a few things. First of all, the services are, the, the, the satisfaction, experience of care yeah. is far superior. Uh, they find that young people that would never have accessed services otherwise, mm -hmm. the hard to serve, the, uh, uh, those uh, young men, uh, 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 indigenous population, those that would have more difficulty tend to use the service. And they also found that the outcomes are good. Now, they're not saying that they're saving money in this model. Mm -hmm. It's shifting money. It's using money in a different way. Yeah. So you're not building a parallel system that costs everybody that much more. Mm -hmm. It's taking the resources and using them in a very different way. In a way that young people are telling us, if you build this, we will come. Mm -hmm. If you keep that, we're not going to come. So why don't we build this? Is there motivation here to change the system? Um, from the Alberta Health Services lens, I think that in, we did a big reorganization of addiction and mental health services, like kind of moved all the puzzle pieces around in yeah. 2014. And at that time, our senior leadership actually created a young adult portfolio in recognition of basically everything that Ian said before, in recognition that it was a very difficult transition between our children's services system and our adult services system. So I think that that is probably really kind of putting your money where your mouth is. I think that that reorganization and that creation of that portfolio does really indicate that our health service, at least our addiction and mental health service, is really committed to changing the system that they are providing and how we can work with others to make that a more um, comprehensive set of services. I think that we're very interested and willing. Um, I think there's lots of discussions happening around uh, the Edmonton zone and around the province of Alberta mm -hmm. about, and there's lots of great work going on. There's lots of those examples of very successful integrated models. And I think it's just getting everybody uh, together and going in the same, uh, same direction. But I think the timing is really, there's so much excitement and so much interest. Um, it's, it's almost harder to find people to say, why not now, as opposed to, yeah, how do we do this is more the question I think we're at right now. And I just wanted to say the other thing about the national or international models that I think is really important is um, when you read any evaluation of Headspace, everybody in Australia would know where to go. And I think that leveraging a provincial model or some sort of branding where people can can recognize that our youth move all over our province mm -hmm. and they move all over our western provinces and, and all over our country and to be able to say I know what that is and I know where to go I think is so valuable so I think we need to we do need to get all on the same plane <laughs> and fly in the same direction 
So, because there's lots of good work, but we have to, I think we do have to leverage that. Um, and what access is doing in terms of shorter wait times? 72 hours as opposed to a year <laughs> or several months or, or, or a few years. And it's all moving in the listening to uh, parents, listening to students. It's all moving in the right direction. But I think about Lori <laughs> and what Lori's going to be facing. And I'm thinking, what can we do to help her now? And I'm sure there are parents <laughs> here who are, wondering, who are in that. Because that system, you know, how do you, how do you know how to navigate? Well, so first of all, I think we need an army. Yeah. <laughs> of you yes, with cadence sure. yeah. because the reality yeah. there is there is some evidence there is some data but politicians might look at data but politicians can't ignore data plus stories yes so uh and and you know if, if things are not going right they they actually are resistant to being having their front their name on the front page of a newspaper or on global news or whatever it happens to be. So there's power in people joining the conversation together, mm -hmm. but with rather than asking for 20 different things yes. mm -hmm. and fragmented, because I've been heard again and again, mental health is so fragmented that governments actually benefit from the fact that we can't get our act together. Of course. They can ignore us because we, you know, yeah. one person's asking for this, or it's about more money in schools, or it's more psychiatrists, or it's, it's more... We are asking for different things, and governments can say, well, when you get your acts together, we'll pay attention to you. Mm -hmm. So what we can do is get our acts together. Mm -hmm. Get youth voice, get family voice, get uh, uh, hospitals talking about the importance of investing in communities, and communities talking about the importance of partners partnerships across sectors, mm -hmm. uh, and getting the, the business community involved and the philanthropic community involved. Because if you don't, the business community will suffer. Mm -hmm. Every business I've ever met, I mean, I used to be the chair of RBC's uh, Child Youth Mental Health Expert Panel. And they decided to make Child Youth Mental Health the focus of their philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And why? Because they, they pulled their workforce. And their workforce says, that's our number one concern. The same thing happened with Canada Post. The exact same thing. So if you ask most businesses, they'll tell you, that because they're parents, this is an issue for us. So how do you get that? all together and then say, here's the possible solution. Let's get behind it. Yes, it hasn't been tried in our community yet. It's just been tried in almost 400 communities around the world. So yeah, there's no evidence that it works. Well, there's probably some evidence and let's evaluate whether it works for us. And if not, let's tweak it. But let's not get all our I's dotted and T's crossed before we do something, because it'll be another 20 years, another generation before your son gets help. And that's wrong. I'm sorry. I no, get, I get carried away. It's okay. Because <laughs> I, I basically was told when I started to look for services when we were turned down for PVD and we were trying to look to the future and him possibly living on his own um, with some kind of assistance or, um, and I was basically told for him that he would have to do, go, his quality of life would have to go down considerably for him to qualify for funding. So he would have to become, um, addicted or have um, become homeless if he wanted to receive funds and support that he's receiving now that that's where things go so right now our system is in a place where it's reactionary rather than proactive mm -hmm. so we really need to look at listening to families listening to youth and saying what did you what could do you think could have prevented us getting to this point of crisis and uh, I think that's where we really have to focus on is getting those hubs in place and like those integrated services 
so that you're, you're taking care of it before it gets to the point where they need that psychiatrist and the medication and, and therapy and everything else. Yeah, Catherine, you talked about how that's with this, with this access research project that a lot, you know, rather than just listening to the professionals and the experts talk about what they think should be, they recognize that there's a difference in culture be between the providers and the people accessing the system. And so they're asking those people using the system what their put in, input is and, and ch making changes accordingly. Yeah, for sure, <laughs> definitely. I think that's been the key, a real key shift in a lot of what we've done since we created um, a young adult service too, was to actually stop trying to solve the problems before we act, asked what the solution was. Um, so it leads to lots of tension in your system because you basically have to open your doors to people and let them in and say, we need to know what you, what you need so that we can build that. So we don't have it quite yet, but we're gonna build it. So it does lead to that um, uncomfortable place. And I think that um, this whole process is gonna make lots of people uncomfortable. But people like our young people and our families are so willing to walk alongside with us to do that. Um, so I think that it's so very valuable and I think the opportunity to amplify those voices. We have people who sit on our steering committees. We have people who work with us. Um, we have a one and only family peer support worker that we hired who's a family member with lived experience who works with our teams. Um, and constantly asks us why, <laughs> why are you doing that? Um, which, is, which is very helpful. <laughs> um, and I think just that, that um, ability to listen and give that space for people to really be creative and innovative, they don't expect you to know the answers or to be able to do them that day. They understand the process and they're willing to walk with you. So I think that that's been a real key change in the way that we do business in our mm. portfolio. And the, I'm sorry, and what happens when you feel heard is you want to tell more people. Yeah. Like when you come in, like when I came to the Family Advisory Council and I heard other people's stories and I had Denise saying, we want to change things, we will listen to you. And I'm still there and it's almost five years later because I felt heard and I felt like my story was believed and valued. And once you get that going and you create that with other people, then, then you can take action and get somewhere. So let's kind of hear about the power of that because, and I'm sorry, Denise, but I'm going to tell a little story about you. There were parents, some parents who were unhappy about some of the things that were happening with their children uh, in, uh, in the system uh, and specifically in, in CASA. And, um, and you were one of them who spoke to Denise and Denise said, okay, We'll form a family council and we'll hear and we'll make changes uh, accordingly. So there's a We've lot of power results. in speaking out. Yeah. We've seen results from yeah. that. Um, just at a meeting last week, we were given results about one of the programs that um, a parent had gone through. And when we heard the changes that had actually been put in place, um, there's a few of us that got quite teary about it to see that our voice had been heard and, and that action had been taken and people were being helped and it made a difference in our community. So, well done. we're gonna keep going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Katie, is this, is this resonating with you? 
Yes, um, we do a lot of the same work um, as Family Advisory Council on our youth councils. So we actually get people that work in CASA giving us, um, like, down to like posters that go on the walls and asking us, hey, how would the youth feel about this? Like, can we change the language? Can we change the graphics of it? Or like things like just down to the little details, like even asking us how like the therapist should um, inform youth about their rights in treatment. And so it like really helps and it opens up and you sit there and you're like, oh, someone actually cares what I think and how I went through things and how it could be made different. So the next kid who has to go through it, it's a better experience for them. Wow. And you've seen some pretty uh, amazing successes already with Access. You've had some students graduate. Yeah. Access, I think the feedback that we get, so we are part of a, the research project, so we yeah. collect a lot of data, so I apologize for anybody who signs up for the research study. No, I'm just joking. It's really important. <laughs> <laughs> it's very important that we get that information. Um, but being able to, to gather that information and feed it back to our decision makers and to take that information to tables where we're making decisions about resource allocation or hours or posters or consent forms or any kind of form. Um, all of that has been really, really helpful. I think that the big things we get feedback on that's most positive is really the access piece. So to be able to walk in and be seen, I think is a really incredible experience. And then to be seen in a way where your voice is really guiding that conversation. Mm -hmm. And there's no, you know, there's no, you don't have to tick these boxes for someone to talk to you. And you don't have to have a referral from your GP. And you don't have to, you can just be nervous about going to work the next day. And you can come in and see somebody. Or you can be completely exhausted and have no idea how to deal with your next, like, three hours of your life. And you can come in. And you'll get seen. And it doesn't matter. There's no... Um, no barriers to that and I think that that has in itself so much power and that's what we've seen that that first appointment sometimes just gives people enough to to go okay like I can do this like you believe in me I believe in me I'm gonna go and give this a try I think that's where we've seen the biggest um, impact and then to do it in a space where people feel comfortable I think has made the other that's the other biggest feedback that we get I know we have youth who say, um, if you built this clinic like this, I, I must not be the only young adult who's struggling. And so just that messaging, you don't even mean to give that message, but it happens anyway because of the space that you walk into. So, so sold. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but you can only, only so many people, I mean, it's one center, only so many people can access it. It's research. That research is going to be used to improve the system. So how far along are we? When, is, when are we going to see change? When are people, not to put you on the spot, because <laughs> I know it's a national project, yeah. uh, but when are we going to start seeing changes for, uh, for people to be able to look at how they can help their kids? Well, I don't have I want to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think... Basically, it's coming. It's, yeah, yeah. Part, being part of Access has really been, we've been doing sustainability planning since the very beginning of the study because I think that was recognized very early on because of the international success, because places like, like Jigsaw have these centers that are so embedded. We knew that we wouldn't open a clinic and then close the clinic when the research was done. That was 
um, a commitment that was made very, very early on in, in signing up for the project. Um, our intention is to basically scale and spread. Um, and for that, we need to kind of move to that next phase of really what integrated use services looks like. And I think we have excellent examples around us um, in British Columbia, in Ontario, um, the information that Frame brings together. I think that we just need to have the right partners start to come together. And, and um, I think we're really close. I know I'm very optimistic some days, but I really think that we are close to seeing implementation of more hubs in the Edmonton zone. Um, we're hoping to have a network of hubs that are all branded, and then we're really advocating uh, with our government and multiple ministries around uh, more provincial scope for integrated use services. They're very so, close. We're very no, close. No, 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 they are. Yeah, we really close. are close, I promise. <laughs> I'm excited but, about what's going to happen in Alberta. Yeah. In Alberta. In Alberta. And across Canada. Oh, I mean, I'm yeah. in Alberta right now, yeah. but I'm excited about what's going to happen yeah. in Alberta. I know that the will is there. Yeah. I know the partners are, are lining up. Yeah. I know they have, I mean, I know government and research and philanthropy are all looking at this. I know that they have the evidence. I know that they're listening, right, to families and to young people. Yeah. Uh, so they're poised. They're poised. So I'm excited. I'm excited. I well, keep buying lottery tickets because if I win, then I'm going to put all my money into integrated use services. <laughs> so part of the reason why we started doing this series in the first place was to give a voice. Yeah. It, it's to, you know, you can't, you got to talk about this because, um, because that's how you're going to get rid of the stigma and that's how you're going to create change. Because stigma comes from thinking there's something wrong and that you're alone, you're the only one going through it, there's something wrong with you and, and no one else is going through the same thing. So that's why we started this whole series in the first place. And, um, and so, you know, I, I guess what we're hoping is that as a collective, by you being here, that, that, will, that you'll start having a voice as well. And so, now, coming back to schools, because you, you mentioned a bit about that, but that's where a lot of, uh, you know, whether it's middle school, high school, moving into university, that's where they're dealing with a lot of, of how to help students who are having mental health issues. So there, there, there's a, a, an explosion in terms of school mental health. Yeah. Uh, there are some leaders in school mental health in, in Alberta. Uh, like FRAME, there's an international network looking at school-based mental health. That association is actually part of FRAME too, so we can share. Yeah. Uh, there's a big uh, school mental health conference that's going to happen in Banff in March. I'm, I'm one of many people that come together so we can share the best practices. There are some models of integrated use services where the site is in a school. Yeah. And they've done that, uh, there's a lot of work in the United States around that in yeah. particular. So we are looking at that as an additional thing. I think some of the provinces and territories are going to go that route. But th there's a challenge with schools. And I, I know there's some educators in the room, but mm -hmm. schools are not open 12 months a year. Yeah. Schools aren't open on weekends. Yeah. Uh, those who have the most difficulty sometimes don't get to school. Yeah. Uh, and if those that, if, if we're talking transitional age youth, a lot of these youth have disengaged from school. Mm -hmm. Uh, they haven't been able to cope in school. I mean, I have a, I have a daughter uh, who also uh, has struggled with mental illness and has been hospitalized, and, and, and she could not get to school. And she ended up stopping school and had to go into an alternative program to finish school in her early 20s. So it's, it's a, school can be a tough thing, too. So it is a solution, but we need more than one solution. You know, it's not like you have a hammer and you're going to look for a nail, right? 
you have to have a toolbox full of different ways of dealing with this. Now, they can be different variations of integrated services, but the other thing you need to do is whatever you do, you have to link all the things together mm -hmm. so that you can constantly learn from each other and that if it doesn't fit for one person and I go to your site mm -hmm. and if it doesn't fit for whatever reason, well, you know where the other thing is and how to facilitate that mm -hmm. so that they're not, it's not a phone number again. It's not a here, you make the call and if you're lucky, yeah. you'll get the right person. And that we, don't, we can't have that anymore. So uh, that's why you know, ministries of education, ministries of health, uh, indigenous, all the different players mm -hmm. need to look at this and have that lens as they're looking at their, at their programming. And it's happening, it's definitely happening. Not as much as we'd all like it to happen, mm -hmm. but it's happening. So schools are a definite player. Primary care, public health, yeah. Yeah. A, a important player. Youth justice, yeah. child welfare, employment, housing, they're all key players. So how do people come together? You've got the Family Council, you've got the Youth Council. How can other people in the room meet up with people to talk about what, what's happening with them and, and to look at sharing ideas and support? Well, I, I, I asked a question. Is it, yeah. is it a, an election issue? So do you raise the is question it? every time that people come together, whether it's local politics or regional politics or provincial politics? I was at a conference once where there are like 300 youth, and they're all talking yeah. about this, and what's great, and stigma reduction, yes, yes. Yeah. And they said, what should we do? And I said, well, you're an army. Yeah. Pointed at something. <laughs> I mean, if you have all these voices, they're going, ah, nah, 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 nah. we focus the voices on one thing, mm -hmm. and that's what a laser is, right? Mm -hmm. It's concentrated on one thing that makes things happen. So take that army and pointing at something. So if you have an election, make an election issue. Stand, ask for the right question. Mm -hmm. Ask about, we've heard about integrated services. What are you doing about that? I haven't heard about it. Why haven't you heard about mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. if, you, if, you know, if you work in your own workplace as parents, well, do other parents think about these issues and also push the envelope a little bit? Collective action here. I'm sorry. I, Actually, no, it's great. And I'm, and calm I'm thinking, down, calm I'm down. No, it's, no, that's exciting. 